Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters Arden Swelling and Ben Nicholson Smith. Our producer this week is Christian Ryan and Ben. As we sit here recording this on the morning of Thursday, April 30th, it is pouring rain outside. I believe last week when we recorded, it was actually snowing. And the week before that, uh, temperatures were like right around zero with, you know, 8,000 kilometer wind gusts. So how do you interpret this? The fact that every time we record, the weather outside is miserable and gloomy and depressing. Is this a message? Like, is this some sort of cosmic message from the gods? It sounds like the kind of analysis we'd be doing under normal circumstances if Tanner Roark was, you know, 0-3 at home after three stars. <laughs> we're just like, he just can't pitch at Rogers Center. He just can't do it. So I, I don't know necessarily what to read into it. You're definitely right. I mean, it's definitely um, recorded on some less than ideal days, but good to be talking some baseball. And, you know, it's for a while seems so distant now, you know, as we'll get into today. Maybe it's actually going to happen this year. It seems like it's a possibility in a way that it, it probably wasn't a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so it's like saying, um, you know, oh, the Blue Jays are 0-4 in their new blue uniforms. You can't wear those anymore. That's what you're saying. Exactly. And you know what? I think there was something with that. Like when they had those red jerseys that came up maybe a few years ago, and right. I want to say 2017, I think they lost a lot of games in the red jerseys and it actually became a question at some point. So generally the answer there is it has nothing to do with the <laughs> um, the actual results but, and, it, and it's just coincidence, but you never know. Maybe the, maybe the weather gods are telling us something. I feel like they are. I also might just be going stir crazy as we sit here in uh, what week seven, week eight, wherever we are in isolation here. I mean, you know, it's kind of become a bit of an ATL tradition that we lead off the podcast with a tip or some advice or, or an update. You know, in the past, Ben, we've heard about your challenges getting some beer delivered to your door. We've heard about your your new fascination with F1. What do you have for us this week in terms of what the life of Ben Nicholson Smith is looking like in isolation? <laughs> well, definitely some some similarities, I think, safe to say, uh, compared to the last six or seven weeks, some common trends. I, I don't know that I have tons of new updates. I think Definitely drinking lots of tea, probably more tea, less coffee these days. I know you're a big coffee drinker, so I assume that your coffee intake has plateaued and, and holding steady. <laughs> and aside from that, you know, I did, I had kind of held off on watching The Last Dance, the uh, Michael Jordan documentary on Netflix, not out of any particular reason, but I did watch a few episodes last night. I thought it was really good, obviously. I mean, that's that's no news to anyone who's already seen it, but it's it's fun seeing a young Michael Jordan at his like incredible athletic peak, like the kind of quickness that he has and the creativity that he has in terms of creating shots and making shots and the finishing touch that he has. You're a much bigger basketball person than me, I think, but it's just so glaringly obvious, like the talent that he has on the court. You can even be like a relatively casual NBA fan and be stunned by how good this guy was. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the interesting thing about that documentary is that he's produced it. <laughs> so, right. you know, he's he's showing the side of himself that he wants. So and it sounds like that you are uh, absorbing what he wants you to absorb. Like, you know, there's an interesting dark side to Michael Jordan that's not being covered in that, you know, off the court. Like the, apparently some of the the stories of, you know, the partying and, and the gambling and the revelry are legendary. And uh, we're unfortunately not getting that. But uh, yeah, no, it is a good documentary. Do you have a tea recommendation for us? Do you have a flavor or a brand, something that you can plug for the tea drinkers? Wow. You know, I like mint tea because you can drink it at any time. 
you know, it's versatile. First thing in the morning, late at night, it's not going to keep you up. It tastes great all the time. You know, no downside. Yeah, I'm a green tea guy. It's funny you mentioned the coffee because I was doing something right before we sat down to record this and we were coming up on the time we had agreed upon. And I was thinking, oh no, like I haven't had time to like brew a fresh pot of coffee. And then I walked over and the coffee that I had brewed like a couple hours earlier was kind of sitting in there and it was cold. Now I think most people wouldn't have drank that, but I am sitting here right now consuming it. Just cold black coffee like a psychopath is what I'm drinking right now. You know, so it ties into what my weekly isolation tip would be, or my, I guess, insight would be this week. And that's that it's okay to have bad days and it's okay to sometimes just drink the cold coffee. Cause like back in the day, before all this went down, we all had bad days, right? And we all, you know, I had a lot of them. I had them rather frequently and then isolation happened and, and we were all forced inside and we were all forced to, you know, adjust our routines and our rituals and do things differently. And if you're like Ben and I, and you'd spend all day, you know, kind of staring at a screen and you're reading the news or you're sitting on social media, like it can be just kind of like a constant barrage of people living their best lives. And, you know, like here's the, 10 body weight exercises you need to be doing right now you're getting fat or you know like hey why haven't you perfectly organized all your closets yet you know here's the five critically acclaimed binge worthy shows that you haven't watched why have you watched them what are you going to talk to people about you know what do you mean you aren't learning spanish and sometimes like it's okay to you know just have bad days where you don't do any of that stuff and you don't feel great and you just have a day where you don't do a lot <laughs> you know like maybe you have a day like a certain at the letters co-host had last week when you spend like two hours reading the news and you become so like consumed and depressed by uh what an overwhelming sea of despair and gloom the world is right now that you eat half a container of yogurt covered pretzels like maybe that happens, you know, maybe you drink the cold coffee. Like, you know, you have to allow yourself to do those things because you're not going to be like what all the advice and recommendations are on social media. You're just not going to live up to that every day is what I'm saying. There's no question about that. There's a lot of pressure out there in a sense. And there always is whenever you open, you know, Instagram, in my case, for some people, it might be Facebook or TikTok or, you know, any platform. But there's always pressure to kind of live up to that standard of, oh, my goodness, it's it's quarantine. Like if you don't emerge from this period of time with a new skill or, a, yeah. you know, a side hustle that that you're really proud of, then then you failed quarantine. I think that's totally false. Right. You'd never look at any other two month period or four month period and say you absolutely have to achieve this goal. Now, that's not to say that it can't be really productive and you can't potentially learn new skills. But anytime that I've learned a new skill in my life, it's not like I sit down start learning, take no breaks, and then finish. Like, there are obviously going to be interruptions in there. And sometimes they might involve, like you said, drinking, you know, coffee that's that's been sitting out too long or eating too many pretzels <laughs> or chips or whatever the case, right? I absolutely think that's part of it in a time like this. Yes, absolutely. That's You have to allow yourself a bit of that yang to the end, you know? It's, it's, it's a balance. You can, you know, you, you can watch that show tomorrow or you can learn that language tomorrow. If today isn't such a great day, that's perfectly fine. Just do whatever uh, makes you happy in the moment. Speaking of optimism, sort of, is what we're speaking about. Major League Baseball, you mentioned it earlier. 
Lots of optimism around MLB right now. It's kind of hard to keep track, honestly, of the various proposals and trial balloons that MLB has been like churning out over the last couple of weeks. You know, first everybody was going to Arizona and then, you know, half the players were going to go to Florida too. And then we had six hubs across the country and then there were three hubs with these massive 10 team divisions. And I don't know, you know, next week it's going to be, uh, you know, some island off the, the coast of the Mediterranean and the week after that it's going to be the moon and whatever. There's a lot of plans. And, you know, hey, look, if I owned and operated a baseball team and a baseball league, I'd be projecting optimism, too, that my product will soon return as well. That hope is great and optimism is great. My opinion is not going to be any shock to anybody who's been listening to this podcast for the last seven, eight weeks. You know, you need a real strategy, one that's feasible, one that prioritizes safety and welfare, not only for those involved, but for the greater public at large. I haven't really seen that yet. I'm curious if you have. It's exactly like you said, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of Rob Manfred or these Major League Baseball owners, you know, you own a business, whether it's a coffee roastery or whether it's a restaurant, this, these are difficult times. You want to project, we expect to be out there, we want to contribute to the community, we expect to be back at full strength, and here's what we're going to do to make that happen. At the same time, there are still those same challenges that we've talked about for weeks and weeks now, and they haven't gone anywhere. You still have to have testing. You still have to have buy-in from players, an agreement between Major League Baseball and the Players Association, tons and tons of logistical issues. So those haven't gone away anywhere. So I don't think it's necessarily surprising that we are where we are. But at the same time, like if Rob Manfred truly felt that there was zero chance, like if he thought that this isn't going to happen, I don't think that we would be seeing these articles. I don't think that we would be hearing, you know, him reportedly saying that he expects to have baseball back in 2020. So I think they genuinely expect to have it back. And, you know, that means that they're going to have to overcome a lot of different hurdles to get the game on the field. So my counter argument to that, it's an incredibly cynical one. But there, you know, there is a benefit there to the optics of MLB and its clubs letting everyone know that they've been trying very, very hard to make this season happen. Essentially, every MLB team has agreed to pay its employees through the end of May. And I would imagine that at a certain point, MLB teams will reach a point where they have to think about furloughs or layoffs, um, you know, for a certain, you know, staff that isn't essential to their operation, whether it's, you know, game ops or, uh, I don't know, ticket sales, marketing, what have you, if there isn't a framework in place for the resumption of play. I mean, those discussions would have to be happening because there's no money coming in. There's no revenue right now. And at some point, clubs will have to find ways to curb expenses. So the cynical retort to that is that, you know, a few weeks of various proposals being thrown around and frameworks being discussed could lay the groundwork for clubs to say, hey, we tried everything we could. We did our best to find solutions, but it, unfortunately, it, it didn't work out. Could you see a situation like that if we arrived at you know the unfortunate unfortunate juncture where team employees start losing jobs? All of that is possible, and I think even within the scenarios that there is a 2020 baseball season, that would mean a different look to it. And in all likelihood, we wouldn't see baseball in Toronto anytime soon, for example. And that would apply to lots of other major league cities. And so for game operations, employees, there would be a lot of consequences there, including likely job losses. That would be the case regardless of whether there's a season. When you're looking at all these different possibilities, 
anything is in place. So I wouldn't rule out what you're saying, but I still think Major League Baseball expects to have some sort of season and that it will be shortened, obviously, maybe 80 games. Maybe it starts in July and moves ahead from there. But that seems to be what they're planning for. And I, I respect like the cynical view that you're presenting here of there's so many hurdles, there's so many obstacles. But Major League Baseball's an $11 billion industry. They have a lot of resources that they can put behind this. They'll have political support. They'll potentially have fan support, you know, depending on, on the fan base. Obviously, there will be different opinions whenever you have an issue like this. But I think the support will be there behind them if they can figure out some of the logistics. And those are all really strong points. And they get at the incentives here to restarting baseball, which are massive. You know, you mentioned $11 billion business. Well, yeah, first and foremost, no team right now is bringing in any revenue. And it's been proven over the last X amount of years that there is a lot of revenue to be brought in if you can put on games. And, you know, the, every MLB club is a business. You know, they're all really big, wealthy businesses, but they're still businesses. And, you know, it's tough to survive for long with zero revenue, especially when you know the revenue is out there that you can bring in. So that's that's one incentive. Another, as you mentioned, fan support. I think fans would be massively supportive of baseball coming back. There's a massive captive audience just sitting at home waiting for something to watch. You look at the numbers from the NFL draft, 11 million Americans watch that. 11 million people like like imagine how many would watch something with actual stakes involved you know imagine how many would watch an actual game contested b between athletes there's a real public health benefit mentally as well to the resumption of baseball which is where i think you know you mentioned the governmental support which is where i think that would come in you know if people have something to look forward to and to dream upon and cast ahead to here in week seven of bitter isolation that's helpful you know there's a public morale element that's real you hear the words you know optimism and and hopeful being thrown around a lot in these discussions with you know mlb officials and club presidents and gms and what have you that's why you hear those words. That's what a lot of people are looking for right now is just optimism and hope in the face of historic catastrophe. No one wants to be opportunistic in the face of this catastrophe, right? And you think of those people who are buying and reselling Purell and there's such a sliminess to some of the quote unquote business opportunities that you see. But for other businesses and at the right time, these are businesses at their core and they are going to look for ways to make money and to gain an audience. And for sports teams or sports leagues in general, they're at a point now where, as you said, there is a lot of demand for sports. Like this documentary on Michael Jordan, it's great. I really think it's great. But would I be watching it in normal circumstances? Like probably not in April of a normal year. And I don't think that it would be the thing that everyone's talking about. You know, it's, it's good. I don't know that it's necessarily like, an earth shattering, stop what you're doing, watch it documentary under normal circumstances. So that just reflects the demand that exists in the leagues that are able to meet that demand, whether it's through esports, whether it's, you know, through content that doesn't have to do with live games, or whether it's through the safe resumption of games, those leagues will end up benefiting. And that can't be lost on Major League Baseball, which I think I'm not so cynical that I would say that Major League Baseball's employees are going to overlook public health in the interest of getting back on the field. But I think in conjunction with public health interests, they're going to be looking to get this thing back. And so I don't 
hope for a major league baseball season, which is weird to say because I love baseball. It's my favorite thing, really. But I don't hope for a major league baseball season to happen this year because it just feels like the wrong thing to be hoping for. You know, like, of course, it would be nice to have it back, but it has to be first and foremost about public health. And so rushing back and then having baseball get in the way of that overall effort, there would be no point to that at a time that there still are so many different struggles and so many unanswered questions surrounding everything. So the the public health side of it, in a lot of ways, boils down to testing. None of this goes off without widespread rapid testing like that is non-negotiable you need to have the ability to detect the virus immediately you know so you can identify where it is who has it isolate those individuals i mean that's just the reality when you're dealing with something as transmissible as this and something that you know can be carried asymptomatically for you know seven days we did the math last week on the podcast you know we're looking at like three thousand four thousand five thousand people to to operate major league baseball in in some of the frameworks that have been presented so if you've got a you know a four-month season and you're so what say four thousand tests a week sixteen thousand per month that's like you know over sixty thousand tests to run this entire operation over four months that's a lot you know, that's a lot of tests that aren't going to hospitals, that aren't going to long-term care homes, that aren't going to supply chain facilities and prisons and other places where there have been outbreaks. So, and that level of testing does not currently exist in the United States. So to me, I mean, the wager here made by a Major League Baseball's clubs is that that level of testing will exist by the beginning of July, like you said, you know, and that there will be an excess of tests by that point so that you can pull this thing off. Is that possible? I mean, we're going to find out. It's not possible right now. But I mean, to me, that's the biggest dilemma that just has to be satisfied before anything else, right? Like that is the big problem ahead of the 15 to 20 other problems that you're going to have to devise solutions to is you need to have enough tests. And can there be enough in the United States by July to make this happen. I don't know, but I, you know, that to me is like the first domino that has to fall in all of this. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, really. Like you can't have mass gatherings right now and you can't have a lot of people together or even a few people right now. And if you want to get close to, I'm not even talking about fans because that's a question for 2021 and beyond. But if you want to get to the point that you can have dozens of people gathering at the same place on the same day over and over, you need a lot of testing. There's no question about that. So you're absolutely right. We obviously aren't in a position to know what the likelihood of widely available testing is within the next couple of months. Maybe Major League Baseball has more information, or maybe it is just this expression of hope that isn't necessarily grounded in concrete facts. It's it's hard to know from the outside. So to me, the like the most feasible scenario and the most realistic thing that I think you could do it would be something quick. Like I think that anything you do has to be done quick because like the disadvantage that MLB has versus NHL and NBA is that they're starting from scratch. It can be an advantage as well also because you can be more creative. But, you know, look, basketball and hockey have played enough of their regular seasons that they could just call those regular seasons off right now and say the results are legitimate. We're going straight into the playoffs. For MLB, like you don't have that platform to jump off of. So trying to have each club play 100 regular season games starting in July or even 80, that's going to expose you to a lot of risk because that's going to take a long time to play out. And the more time that you're playing and the more games you play 
And the more cities you're playing in, the more travel you have, the more breakpoints exist. You know, whether it's something innocuous, like one player slips up and goes to the wrong place at the wrong time, catches the virus, infects his whole team, and now you got to shut that whole thing down. Or whether it's something much more substantial, like a potential second wave of the virus that comes around in the fall, which, you know, infectious disease experts will tell you that it's a pretty realistic scenario that, you know, over the rest of spring and summer, we gradually reopen businesses and slowly and deliberately ease restrictions. We all like poke our heads out, look around and like see if it's safe. And then everything's fine for a few weeks until the virus starts finding new hosts and infections go upwards and so on and so forth. And we end up where we were a couple of months ago and we all have to go back inside again. There's that kind of push-pull dynamic, right? So, you know, the longer that you play out the season, the more risk you have of encountering that or of playing games when that happens. And then what do you do, right? Like, do you shut it all down again? Do you soldier on? What do you do if you encounter that scenario? So I think rather than having this big, long four-month plan, I could much more feasibly see a two-month, you know, maybe a 10-week World Baseball Classic-style tournament. All 30 teams, you put them in, like, however many hubs, you know, make sense with, you know, public health and with geography and with game times and everything. So four to six hubs, three to five, however many you play around Robin. And then from that, you get a championship bracket and then you get a consolation bracket for the losers. And from that consolation bracket, you have the opportunity to play your way back into the championship side, which would keep it interesting for those teams that lose out of the round Robin. Um, and then you just bang out the whole thing within like, you know, 60 to 80 days and call it a season. Maybe the World Series isn't even on the line at the end because it's just so strange and foreign, the process of getting there. Maybe you invent like a one-time trophy and slap some beloved dead ball player's name on it and like just call it whatever you want to call the, the tournament. I think that's the most realistic path forward to having actual baseball played this year is doing it quickly than over a prolonged series of time. The quarantine cup. It's an interesting idea. I think for Major League Baseball, they would prefer to have the season of some kind. But at a certain point, like if we get into August, for example, and they haven't resumed play, I think you have to start looking at options like this. And you have to start considering the possibility that Bob Nightingale reported a few days ago of realigning, you know, and, and you were alluding to that by, you know, mentioning the different time zones and different sites. You might just have to throw your traditional divisions out the window and come up with a way to get games in in a short period of time because whenever this season takes place, there is going to be some sort of sense of urgency to try to get as many games in as possible within a limited time frame. So that might be time to throw out your traditional divisions. I agree, like, if you're not having a full season, if it's a small round robin, if the divisions are off, if everyone has been training in these different ways, in that case, I don't like the idea of it being a World Series, personally. If you're only playing a 50-game or 40-game, 30-game tournament, to me, you know, at a certain point, like, let's just call it something else and have the World Series come back in 2021. What could you see as feasible? Like, I, I think the tournament is the most realistic scenario that we see, but do you think it's realistic that there could be a more traditional regular season in playoff structure? I think in a best case scenario, it's possible. And, you know, obviously in the last couple of months, we've we've gotten used to seeing 
a reality that's that's very far away from the best case scenario. So I, I'm certainly not assuming this, but if testing became available to the point that all of these employees and players and support staff could be regularly tested, and if that could happen soon, then you might be looking at a July start date. And at that point, maybe you can get in 90 games, 80 games, somewhere in that range to the point that you have something approximating a full season. And I think at that point, it's a legitimate season. You go ahead with the playoffs and you've got your World Series. But that really is a best case scenario. I I, I don't think that anyone, players, owners, fans, can count on that at this point. And with each day that passes and testing remains difficult, that scenario becomes less likely. And the tournament scenario that you're describing, Arden, probably becomes more likely. The problem with the tournament scenario that I see is just how you get players and ownership to agree upon the terms under which, you know, compensation and service time and and this, that and the other would be awarded. Right. Like, like how do you award service time in a two month tournament style situation in which, right, like some teams in a tournament might end up playing a lot more games than other teams. And the total games played for the team that plays the most isn't going to be anywhere near, you know, the amount of games it would take to accrue a full year of service time under normal circumstances. You know, um, what does that mean for player salaries that were originally negotiated on a 162 game basis? What does it mean for incentives, for bonuses? What kind of a, you know, spring training would be necessary ahead of a tournament like that? You know, how do you ensure players are physically prepared and aren't putting themselves at risk of injury and teams aren't tempted to bring back pitchers on, you know, super short rest, you know, to in certain tournament scenarios. I mean, those are some of the variables and the aspects that it would probably be hard to find some common ground on between owners and players. For sure. And this this whole year, this whole experience is putting that relationship to test. It's funny when you look back to, let's say, November, at that point, my impression, this is before free agency bounced back and before there was a sense that there had been some momentum and that players were getting paid the way that they should. You know, the Garrett Cole deals all the way down to, to Ryu with the Jays and throughout the industry, free agency did bounce back. But in November, before that happened, my sense was that those sides were bracing for conflict ahead of the next negotiation for a CBA. And since then, we've seen the bounce back of the free agent market and we've seen a pandemic that's forced them to come together. So I think personally, yes, those are difficult issues. But no, they would not come in the way of a season because it would be such a bad look if there was testing. Let's say available testing. We have the sites figured out. The logistics are you know, in progress, gaining momentum. And then the players and owners can't get together on service time. I mean... It would be, you know, we wrote about the 94-95 work stoppage and players right the other week at sportsnet.ca and how much that hurt the game, how fans were really hesitant in a lot of cases to come back and invest their time, invest their money in a sport that to a lot of observers just missed the big picture. And it was millionaires against billionaires. Well, in this case, it would still be millionaires against billionaires. But in the context of a global pandemic and for an industry that has to be aware of optics, that has to be aware of its own history and the lessons available from that, you cannot afford to let any of these significant but ultimately medium scale issues get in the way of a season if it's safely possible to play a season in 2020. 
so many of these conversations that we have now boil down to like whether you're an optimistic person or a pessimistic person, right? Because if you if you're an optimistic person, you say, well, hopefully, you know, the strong free agency that just occurred and this, you know, global catastrophe that has forced everybody to work together to find solutions, hopefully that's bridged the divide between the players and owners, right? And hopefully that has repaired some of, you know, the wounds or like the, hopefully that's, you know, gotten guys to, you know, put their sabers back into their quills or however sabers work. Hopefully that has helped. But if you're pessimistic, you say, well, well you know, these are two sides that really were unhappy with each other and the players especially were unhappy with how things are playing out under the the CBA um, and free agency and you know the the different ways that players are being compensated the reductions in compensation for veteran players you know the way free agency had played out there was you know, a lot of talk about work stoppages and about how the CBA was going to have to address some very serious issues going forward you know there, there's talk about you know the the union starting to build a war chest to be able to pay players if there is a work stoppage and even like right now we're already seeing the league and union disagreeing over language in the agreement that they reached only a month ago with regards to how players are going to be compensated if play resumed like we've already seen them nitpicking at that through you know jeff passan and through ken rosenthal and, and nightingale and etc so i have to believe that there would be further back and forth and further battles to be fought between those two sides, particularly if the season ended up not looking anything like a traditional MLB season looks like. I agree. I think there will be battles and, you know, that gap that you talk about, can it be bridged? In a sense, it will never be bridged because, you know, as long as they're essentially in competition in this zero-sum game for the amount of revenue that flows to and through Major League Baseball there's always going to be tension there. And I think that's okay. I mean, we've seen them negotiate agreements before and we haven't seen any sort of work stoppage since 1995 uh, until now. So I think that it's okay to have issues. There, there have always been issues. There have been close calls even. You know, in, in 2002, there's a close call. In 2016, it was much smoother. The intervening agreements also were, were considerably smoother. But it's okay for there to be some contentious moments here. I just think as long as you get to that point, as long as you're not, hey guys, like we we have everything in place, but there's a player strike. Like you just can't do that. And that's not to dismiss these issues that you're talking about, but I think, and maybe this is an optimistic viewpoint, I don't know, but I, I think even looking at it pragmatically, you know, these sides would have to realize that the incentives are, are really not only stacked toward them getting an agreement and getting some revenue going, but think about the negative. Think about the the negative optics of not playing baseball because of a labor issue at this point. I know I, I tend to trend like pro player and pro labor. I would just I would hate to see a scenario like you're, you know, drawing up in which like everything's put in place for there to be a season, you know, there to be a tournament or whatever it's going to be. And like you said, there's a player strike. Like I would hate to see that drawn up and the players to have to take a wash, you know, or take a haircut and all this that is not, you know, equitable and, and fair and doesn't make sense for both sides. You know, that's kind of you look at how the last CBA has played out, you know, it looks like the players did not do well in that CBA and the owners gained a lot of ground that they had been trying to gain without giving up very much to, you know, the players or, you know, the, the workers. So, you know, like I would have to see it from the player's perspective at that point, if that happened, if they really, you know, truly 
we're not being treated fairly or equitably in whatever the the agreement is. But then again, from an ownership perspective, I mean, you know, how do you address the fact that clubs will be receiving far less revenue this season than they normally do? You know, they've already lost a month of games. We've seen with some of the ticket, you know, rebates and refunds and credits that it's, you know, it's now plainly evident that there will not be games in May. So that's two months of home dates that you're not getting those concessions. You're not getting that gate. You're not getting the merchandise and and all the other, you know, ancillary sales that come with operating home games in, in your market. And the one thing that everyone seems to agree upon in all of this is that there certainly won't be fans in the seats to watch baseball if it is eventually played. From the ownership side, you know, how much should they realistically be paying players in the complete absence of revenue from home dates? You know, I, I don't know how you bridge that gap. Yeah, and this is where it's probably easier in a sport like hockey or basketball where they have these fixed arrangements for what percentage of revenue goes to the players. Because at that point, all right, our revenue is down. Therefore, it's a pretty easy calculation. You figure out where that money flows. In baseball, there hasn't been that clear line drawn. It's not 49% or 51%. It's what you can get. It is more of an open market in that sense. And so, yeah, there, there would be a lot of questions there. But like you said, the entire industry, you know, from the guy selling peanuts to the person, you know, providing the hot dogs to all the way up to the owners and and commissioners, like everyone is taking a loss as far as revenue here in a season like this. And it's of course, that applies far beyond baseball, far beyond sports, but it is such a time of change. And in, in a lot of cases, from a revenue standpoint, it's not changed for the better. And by the way, like, and this is so, so far down the list of things that anybody needs to be worried about, but like baseball without fans is going to be really weird. No fans in the stands is going to be an adjustment. And like, obviously some baseball is better than no baseball, but like think back to that game that the Orioles played without fans during the Baltimore riots like that was eerie, very unsettling. <laughs> and, and I think people have to brace themselves for the strangeness of that and just for, you know, how bizarre it is going to be to watch players in these massive stadiums playing games with no fan noise whatsoever and being able to pick up very clearly on the broadcast just the noises that are happening at field level. Yeah, the crowd, like it's not just a bonus on top of the game the fans really are part of the game and that's true for anyone who's at the ballpark of course you're you're there you're experiencing it you're close to it but even if you're watching on tv you know next time you watch a rebroadcast of the blue jays which you know we continue airing on sportsnet and you can find you know also various spots online if you are watching carefully you'll notice how often especially in big games how often the tv producers turn to fans in the stands. And it's great, great stuff. You see their reactions. You see the signs that they're holding, the looks of devastation after an error or a missed opportunity. It's really part of the game, even to the extent that, you know, you think of some of the most memorable, infamous moments in the last 25 years. Like you have Jeffrey Meyer in that Yankees-Orioles game, right. a fan who who caught that, that home run. I think it was in right field at Yankee Stadium, probably around 1997. Or you have Steve Bartman with the Cubs and Marlins. Like these are fans who are actually becoming part of the game. There was that guy in the outfield when the Jays were playing the Royals in 2015. He, I think he caught a, a home run ball or something. Like there, there's... Yeah. 
the bearded guy. Exactly. I'm sure some of the listeners can picture him in their mind's eye because these fans are part of the game. And, you know, most of us are, you know, when we when we go to a sporting event, we're in the background, but we still we create that picture. We create that experience for the players. They're going to miss fans. They want fans around. Even the fans watching at home, it's going to be such a different experience. Yeah, my favorite anecdote from that 94-95 piece that we put together came from Bob Boone, who in his first game as Kansas City Royals manager after the strike had ended, like he had been hired during the strike, he's making his first mound visit as the manager of the club at a sold-out Coffin Stadium. He has to go take a picture out of the game in the middle of a no-hitter because it's the you know first game after like a three-and-a-half-week spring training. So he's not built up yet, and he's already blown way past his pitch limit. And Bob Boone goes out to the mound and is getting just booed mercilessly by everybody by pack to their afters Kaufman Stadium his own fans new manager's first mound visit and he is met by all these boos the fans are absolutely a part of the game they absolutely have a part to play and it's going to be you know you can probably go dig up that old that Baltimore game when they played without fans like go back and watch that like it's weird it's eerie. You know, I also wonder what the dugout's going to look like if we start up baseball again in 2020. Like, are you going to have 26 guys and 10 coaches all crammed in there? Or will you have to expand into the stands, you know, and, and space things out a bit more and have guys sitting in the rows of seats behind the dugout, you know, not only to practice social distancing themselves, but to model good behavior for everyone who's watching. Are you going to have high fives and handshakes and hugs you know, or what's a mound visit going to look like? You know, when the pitching coach comes out to the mound, like, can he go stand on the mound and talk to his pitcher? Or does he have to, like, shout instructions at him from, you know, two feet away? Like, what about what if a player gets hurt and a trainer has to to come out and, and kind of assess him? Does he have to do that from a distance? Is the trainer wearing personal protective equipment? What about an argument with an umpire? Like, what about when, you know, John Gibbons wants to come running out of the dugout to yell at the umpire? Like, does he come running? out and then stop two meters from him and like scream at him from a distance like there's so many variables here yeah even like covering faces right because you know in a lot of in a lot of cases the the coaches for example the managers the trainers they wouldn't need necessarily to have unobstructed breathing so they might be wearing you know face masks we might not see their face we might not see their their facial reactions you know maybe they're just wearing a a blue jays logo on a mask um, and that's all we see you know it's there are going to be so many weird things even spitting right you think about how much spitting there is in baseball all the time they're just spitting and spitting and it's you know that's going to be a tough habit for guys to kick especially for the not insubstantial proportion of players who chew tobacco and that requires a lot of spitting basically to get rid of uh, the, the saliva so it's yeah it's going to be weird baseball is you know not necessarily the most hygienic game if we as we have said before and it's going to require all kinds of adjustments when it does come back Yeah, can you even have baseball without spitting? Spitting is as woven into the fabric of this game as, uh, you know, like you said, chewing tobacco or, uh, you know, sunflower seeds, right? Every player that I know chews sunflower seeds. Like, they all do it. And, like, if you walk around, like, the Rogers Center turf after a game, which, like, uh, you and I do sometimes when we're doing, you know, TV hits or, you know, what have you out there on the field, 
like the the turf is littered with sunflower seeds and tobacco and like the dugout is just absolutely filthy with saliva and you know empty cups and shells of seeds and all kinds of stuff it's incredibly unhygienic how will that be broached if major league baseball returns you know think about the clubhouse right is the clubhouse being disinfected after every game you know are all the bats and gloves being wiped down our clubbies walking around wearing PPE. What does the ball boy do when he runs the ball out to the umpire? Like, is he wearing gloves and a mask or does he kind of roll them out to the ump there? There's just like every time we have this discussion, I think of like dozens of new variables that have to be accounted for. Yeah, it's just going to look weird, you know, like in the same way that, you know, the first time you saw a photo of Bam Bloor right downtown Toronto and it's rush hour and nobody's there and you're like, wow, this is this is different. Or, you know, you see people walking around outside in masks and in a sense that's now become the new normal. But at first that was obviously jarring and it will along those same lines, it will be very jarring when we first see baseball players wearing masks or wearing gloves or not high fiving after a big home run. It's going to be weird. Yes, yes, absolutely. Everything is weird these days. I do hope that we get some baseball this season, no matter what it looks like. Uh, Part of me is kind of hoping for the tournament because I think that would just be awesome. I would love it if baseball just got super weird this year and just blew up everything, blew up the divisions, blew up the structure and the format and just did something completely different. That might be even just kind of like a refreshing kind of reset on the game and any kind of like rule changes or experiments that are played out during that. Like maybe you incorporate some of the stuff they've been playing around with in the Atlantic league. And cause if you're already going down the road of weirdness, like you might as well just like dive in and you might as well just go full steam ahead and just try all kinds of different stuff and see what works and what doesn't. I think there's an opportunity there to really find some cool, you know, adaptations or some, you know, some, some different ways to change the game and to make it better going forward and to actually learn some things. This is the optimistic thing that I will say. I think there, you know, some some pretty cool stuff could come out of this little refresh and reset for the game. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, it sounds a little bit like corporate jargon that, you know, you'd hear this isn't a pause. This is a gear shift. You know, this is an opportunity like, all right, like it's a pandemic as well. So there has to be some understanding. So, you know, opportunity can sound, you know, maybe a little not quite the right word in that circumstance, but it is because it's a free pass. Whatever happens this year, hey, if it's great, amazing. If it didn't work, well, there's pretty good reasons why it didn't work. So no one's going to hold it over Major League Baseball and say that you, you know, you completely failed. This was out of their control. So now they can play around, see what different formats look like, try some different ideas and see where it leads them. Yes, we shall see. And if you'd like to uh, read about that 94-95 strike winter slash spring of 95 when they restarted baseball like the last spring when there was not baseball last time the game stopped you can do that sportsa.ca shy ben and myself worked on the big read there and and talked to a whole bunch of former players and coaches and uh execs and, and got some cool stories from that time and some cool lessons learned and some stuff that can still apply today uh 25 years later that's gonna be it He's Ben Nicholson-Smith. You can get him on Twitter at Smith. Our producer this week was Christian Ryan. He's on Twitter at ChristianRyanNS. Thank you to him for all of his work. My name's Arden Zwelling. I'm on Twitter at Arden Zwelling. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you're all safe and happy. And I hope that this rain stops sometime soon so that maybe we can all just like enjoy some nice weather and a nice breath of fresh spring air. Until the next time that we talk to you, this has been... 
at The Letters. 